fall. One day my English lessons ceased abruptly. The weather was getting hot, and one of my pupils, feeling too lazy to go on with his lessons, dismissed me. The other just disappeared from his lodgings without notice, owing me twelve francs, and I was left with only thirty centimes and no tobacco. For a day and a half I had nothing to eat or smoke, and then, too hungry to put it off any longer, I packed my remaining clothes into my suitcase and took them to the pawn shop. This put an end to all pretense of being in funds, for I could not take my clothes out of the hotel without asking Madame F.'s leave. I remember, however, how surprised she was at my asking her, instead of removing the clothes on the sly, shooting the moon being a common trick in the quarter. It was the first time that I had been into a French pawn shop. One went through grandiose stone portals, marked, of course, with liberté, égalité, fraternité. <laughs> they write that even over the police stations in France. Into a large bare room like a school classroom with a counter and rows of benches. Forty or fifty people were waiting. One handed one's pledge over on the counter and sat down. Presently, when the clerk had assessed its value, he would call out, Numero such and such, and will you take fifty francs? Sometimes it was only fifteen francs, or ten, or five. Whatever it was, the whole room knew it. As I came in, the clerk called with an air of offence, Numero eighty-three, here, and gave a little whistle and beckoned, as though calling a dog. Numero eighty-three stepped to the counter. He was an old bearded man with an overcoat buttoned up at the neck, afraid trouser ends. Without a word, the clerk shot the bundle across the counter. Evidently it was worth nothing. It fell to the ground and came open, displaying four pairs of men's woolly pants. No one could help laughing. Poor numero 83 gathered up his pants and shambled out, muttering to himself. The clothes that I was pawning, together with the suitcase, had cost over twenty pounds, and they were in good condition. I thought they must be worth ten pounds, and a quarter of this, one expects a quarter value at a pawn shop, was two hundred and fifty or maybe three hundred francs. I waited without anxiety, expecting, well, two hundred francs at the worst. At last the clerk called my number. Numero 97? Yes, I said, standing up. Seventy francs. Seventy francs for ten pounds worth of clothes. But it was no use worth arguing. I'd seen someone else attempt to argue, and the clerk had instantly refused to pledge. I took the money and the pawn ticket, and I walked out. I'd now no clothes except what I stood up in, the coat badly out at an elbow, overcoat moderately pawnable, the one spare shirt... Afterwards, when it was too late, I learned that it is wiser to go to a pawn shop in the afternoon. The clerks are French, and like most French people, are in a bad temper until they've eaten their lunch. When I got home, Madame F. was sweeping the bistro floor. She came up the steps to meet me, and I could see in her eye that she was uneasy about my rent. "'Well,' she said, "'what did you get for your clothes?' "'Not much, eh?' Uh, two hundred francs, I said promptly. 
Tiens, she said, surprised. Well, that's not bad. How expensive those English clothes must be. The lie saved a lot of trouble. And strangely enough, it came true. A few days later, I did receive exactly 200 francs due to me for a newspaper article, and though it hurt to do it, I at once paid every penny of it in rent. So, though I came near to starving in the following weeks, I was hardly ever without a roof. And it was now absolutely necessary to find work, and I remember a friend of mine, a Russian waiter named Boris, who might be able to help. I first met him in the public ward of a hospital where he was being treated for arthritis in his left leg. He told me to come to him if I was ever in any difficulty. And I must say something about Boris, because he was a curious character, and my close friend for a long time. He was a big, soldierly man, about thirty-five, and I had been good-looking at one time, but since his illness had grown immensely fat from lying in bed. Like most Russian refugees, he'd had an adventurous life. His parents were killed in the revolution, and they'd been rich people, and he'd served through the war in the Second Siberian Rifles, which, according to him, was the best regiment in the Russian army. And after the war, he had first worked in a brush factory, and then as a porter at Les Halles, and then became a dishwasher. And finally, he worked his way up to be a waiter, where he fell ill, and he was at the Hotel Scribe, and became a hundred franc a day in tips. His ambition was to become the maître d'hôtel, after fifty thousand francs, and set up a small select restaurant on the right bank. Boris always talked of the war as the happiest time of his life. War and soldiering, well, they were his passion. He'd read innumerable books on strategy and military history, and he could tell you all about the stories of Napoleon and Kurtzov and Clausewitz and Moltke and Foch. Anything to do with these soldiers pleased him. His favourite café was the Clausier de Lies en Montparnasse, simply because the name of the statue of Marshal Ney stands outside it. Later on, Boris and I sometimes went to the Rue de Commerce together. If we went by Metro, Boris always got out a Cambron station instead of Commerce, although Commerce was nearer, because he liked the association with General Cambron, who was called on to surrender at Waterloo, and simply entered Meurtre. The only things left to Boris by the Revolution were his medals and some photographs of his old regiment. He'd kept these when everything else went to the pawn shop, and almost every day he would spread the photographs out on his bed, and he'd talk about them. Voilà mon ami. There you see, me at the head of my company. Fine big men, eh? Not like these little rats of Frenchmen. A captain at twenty-one, not bad, eh? Yeah? Captain in the Second Siberian Rifles? Ah, my father was a colonel. Ah, mais mon ami, the ups and downs of life. A captain in the Russian army. And then, piff, the revolution. Every penny gone. In 1916, I stayed a week in the Hotel Edouard. September. 
1920, I was trying for a job at night. Watchman there. I've been a night watchman, cellarman, floor scrubber, dishwasher, porter, lavatory attendant. I've tipped waiters. I have been tipped by waiters. Ah, but I have known what it is like to live like a gentleman, mon ami. I do not say it to boast, but the other day I was trying to compute how many mistresses I have had in my life, and I make it out to be over two hundred. <laughs> yes, at least two hundred. <laughs> ah, well, save Ravenda. Victory to him who fights the longest. Ah, courage, eh? Etc., etc. Boris had a queer, changeable nature. He always wished himself back in the army, but he'd always been a waiter long enough to acquire the waiter's outlook. Though he had never saved more than a few thousand francs, he took it for granted that at the end he would be able to set up his own restaurant and grow rich. All waiters, I afterwards found, talk and think of this. It's what reconciles them to being waiters. Boris used to talk interestingly about hotel life. Waiting is a gamble, he used to say. You may die poor, but you may make your fortune in a year. You are not paid wages. You are depend on the tips, 10% of the bill, and a commission from the wine companies on champagne corks. Ah, sometimes the tips are enormous. <laughs> the barman at Maxim, for instance, makes 500 francs a day. More than 500 in the season. I have made 200 francs a day myself. It was at a hotel in Paris in the season. The whole staff, from the manager down to the plongeur, was working 21 hours a day. 21 hours work and two and a half hours in bed. <laughs> For a month on end. Still, it was worth it. 200 francs a day. You never know when a stroke of luck is coming. Only when I was at the Hotel Royal, an American customer sent for me before dinner and ordered 24 brandy cocktails. Well, I brought them all together on a tray in 24 glasses. Now, Garçon, said the customer, and he was drunk, I'll drink 12, and you'll drink 12, and if you can walk to the door afterwards, you get a hundred francs. <laughs> I walked to the door, and he gave me a hundred francs. And every night, for six days, he did the same things. Twelve brandy cocktails, and then a hundred francs. Yeah. Six months later, I learned that he'd been extradited by the American government embezzlement, you know. <laughs> this is a fine thing, you know. You do not think about these Americans, eh? I like Boris. And we had interesting times together playing chess and talking about war and hotels. Boris used often to suggest that I should become a waiter. Their work would suit you, he'd say. When you are in work with a hundred francs a day and a nice mistress, it's not bad. You say you go for writing. Ah, writing is bosh. There is only one way to make money at writing, that's to marry a publisher's daughter. <laughs> but you would make a good waiter if you shaved that moustache off. You are tall, 
and you speak English, and those are the chief things a waiter needs. Wait till I can bend this accursed leg, mon ami, and then, if you are ever out of a job, you come to me. Well, now that I was short of my rent, and getting hungry, I remembered Boris's promise, and I decided to look him up at once. I didn't hope to become a waiter so easily as he'd promised, but of course I knew how to scrub dishes, and no doubt he could get me a job in the kitchen. He'd said that dishwashing jobs were to be had for the asking during the summer, and it was a great relief to remember that I had, after all, one influential friend to fall back on.